You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Thanks, Stephen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it reminds us of your extraordinary grace and how that changes everything in our lives. Amen. All right, well, can I ask you please to make sure you've got a Bible open in front of you at page 1700. We're going to spend our time in Titus chapter 2 tonight. Uh, and also, please pull out the leaf that you were given you, and if you open it up, you'll see on the inside a reasonably detailed outline of what we're going to cover over the next little while. Well, as uh, Verity noted at the start, today is Commitment Sunday, and uh, Titus chapter 2 is in many ways the perfect passage for us to get to tonight uh, because it contains two wonderful truths about what Christians are buying into when they turn to Christ. Uh, firstly, uh, we see the kind of church family that we are, the kind of church family that we are, uh, but just as importantly, when we're not, the second thing we see is how we are changed for the better. And so let's kick off then with point one, the kind of church family that we are, uh, verses one through ten, uh, and you'll see there we're on the left-hand side of the handout. Now, the story so far is that the Apostle Paul has left Titus behind on Crete to appoint leaders for the fledgling church. Uh, these leaders were told they must hold firmly to the trustworthy message to encourage others by sound doctrine. That was chapter 1, verse 9. And the reason for that is because, as we saw back in chapter 1, verse 1, it's knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. 
And so, chapter 2, verse 1, if you have a look there, chapter 2, verse 1, it opens with a reminder for Titus 2. Uh, verse 1, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And as he does so, he's to address five different subgroups uh, within the church family. There's similar themes, although there's some differentiation. So let's look at each of those five groups, and they're all listed there for you on your handout, one at a time. Firstly, older men. Older men. Pick it up in verse 2 with me. Titus chapter 2, verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. The picture of the character and the conduct of older men in the church family is best summed up in that lovely phrase there in verse 2, worthy of respect. Worthy of respect. Uh, I think it conveys the sense of being dignified or commendable or honourable. Words there like self-controlled, well, they're a lovely image of being solid and dependable, of being measured and unwavering of not lurching from one extreme to another, of careering out of control. And so, in verse 2, older men are also to be sound in faith, in love and in endurance. And that paints a picture, I think, of consistency, of robustness, of integrity. But the word there, endurance, is translated by some Bibles as steadfastness. And it conveys the image, I think, of persevering, of standing firm, even in the face of suffering. Of course, the best example, the best model of that is Jesus himself. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 5, printed there on your handout. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and into Christ's perseverance or Christ's endurance or steadfastness. Uh, this week, as I've been preparing for this talk, I found myself thinking about uh, just the amazing fact that there are this is a description of so many of the men in our church, particularly in our 9am gathering. I think of men like Roger or Dennis. These are men who are in every way steadfast and measured. They are faithful and gospel-hearted. They are temperate, generous and servant-minded. They are in every way the kind of man who I would like to be one day. So Paul starts by addressing the older men. Next, verses 3 through 5, he turns to the older women and to the younger, and to the younger women. Uh, actually, verses three, uh, verse 3 addresses the older women, then verses 4 and 5 address the younger women. Start with the older women, verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Now you'd notice that once again, like the older men in fact, older women are to be characterised by a stately dignity, by grace. Uh, that's seen both in what they are to do, uh, they are to be reverent in the way in which they live, but that's also to be seen in what they are not to do. Do you notice there in verse 3? They're not to be slanderers. Now, the word that's been translated slander is for us, uh, in the original language, in the Greek, the word is diabolos, literally diabolical. Older women are not to be diabolical. Or, likewise, verse 3, addicted to much wine. Uh, literally, the word is enslaved, enslaved to much wine. Because both are 
awful, crass images of endless gossip, of uninhibited and unrestrained self-indulgence. Instead, older women, we're told, verse 3, they are to teach what is good, but not what is excessive, what is good to younger women. Once again, this week, as I've been thinking about this passage, it struck me how this could be the perfect description of so many of the older women in our church. Again, particularly at our 9am gathering. I think of Margie or Ruth. I think of Julie or Joan at our 10.30 gathering. All women who give of their lives to mentor younger sisters in the faith who keep teaching in Sunday school, even though they are well past retirement age. And in many ways, I found myself thinking, I'd like to be like them as well. Now, precisely because of the way in which these older women live, these older women have a credibility. You might say they have a moral authority to instruct the younger women. So look with me at verse 4. Verse 4, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Uh, The image here is of setting an example. Uh, More than just, well, do what I say, this says, imitate my way of life. Now, you'll notice in verse 4 that Paul appears to focus on the domestic life of younger women, and particularly those who are married with children. Uh, Part of the reason I take it that he uh, dwells on this is because, at the time, that was certainly the norm and expectation. Uh, Although, of course, it's not the only pathway for women today. Uh, Don't forget either that there were outstanding examples of women who were more broadly involved than just in the home, their civic and commercial responsibilities were significant. Think, for example, of Lydia in Philippi. We meet her in Acts chapter 16. She's described as a highly successful businesswoman, a dealer in purple cloth, who opened her home for a church to meet in it. But I take it that for younger women who are married with children... The picture here again is, once again, of a commendable dignity. A commendable dignity. Look at the four descriptions in verse 5 of what these younger women are to be like. They are to be self-controlled, just like the older men back in verse 2. In verse 5, they are to be pure. The sense is of a moral goodness. They are to be busy at home. Which again is not to say that all young women should be homemakers. Rather, it's saying that in every sphere of life, they ought never be idle nor indolent. And lastly, in verse 5, it says that they are to be kind. Literally, the word is good. Good, which, as I've been saying, is the key throughout this whole letter, given how often Paul keeps using the word. Now, of course, the thing is, none of this is particularly easy, particularly for, in this case, young mums who are spending their lives trying to corral toddlers or teenagers. But, once again, as I've thought about this passage this week, how well it describes so many of the younger women in our church. 
I think of Penny or Ali in our 1030 gatherings. Young women who are persevering and standing firm despite some hard years of early motherhood. Before I move on, I just want to address the elephant in the room. Uh, that's in verse 5. It talks about young women being subject to their husbands. Um, I don't want to get sidetracked. It's not actually the main idea in chapter 2, but I realise that even the reference to the phrase can be somewhat distracting. What does it mean for women to be subject to their husbands? Well, let me say two things. Firstly, what it's not saying, when it says be subject to the husbands, it is not saying be subjugated by your husbands or be downtrodden or oppressed in any way. I say that even though actually the very same word will appear in verse 9. Did you notice? Verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters. I say that because, well, here is what I think Paul is saying. In saying to be subject, Paul is saying that in every relationship, be it wives and husbands, be it slaves and masters, the same general principle applies even if the specific application varies. And what's that principle? Well, it's the principle that we see consistently throughout the Bible. It's the call for all Christians to put the interests of others before their own. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul will insist that husbands are to be subject to their wives. How? By being willing to lay down their lives for their spouse. It is, I think, a moving description of the, self, of the power of self-sacrificial love that is truly wonderful when it works. Now, of course, I know that um, sometimes it doesn't. Can I say that any such failures must never be excused, only repented of? But the reason why I can say that this principle of being subject to others is good, even if it's hard in practice, the reason why I can say that it's good is because exactly the same word, be subject to, is also used of Jesus with our Father in heaven. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 verse 28. I printed there on your handout. When he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all and in all. It's telling us that even if it's hard in practice, it's a goal worth aspiring to. Maybe that's why Paul will conclude his directions to younger women with the encouragement that, verse 5, this kind of self-sacrificial love will ensure that no one will malign the word of God. Well, older women, sorry, older men, older women and younger women, thirdly, we come to young men. Young men in verses 6 through 8. Pick it up with me. Titus chapter 2, verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Now, this is actually in two parts, what Paul has to say to young men. Uh, firstly, he gives a command to them in verse 6, and then it's followed by a specific strategy for Titus in verses 7 and 8, uh, interestingly, Titus is probably also one of those young men, so most likely he's been instructed on how to lead his peers, which is perhaps one of the more challenging scenarios. Well, look firstly at the command. 
the command to young men. Here's what's interesting. There is only one thing that's said to them, only one command. Perhaps that's because they can't cope with more than that. And this is the one that matters. Now, of course, given what we've seen so far, you're hardly surprised, right, by what that one command is? It's self-control. Self-control. And so the strategy for Titus as to how he's going to teach young men self-control, verse 7, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Once again, as with older women and younger women, this highlights the power of leading by example. The power of modelling behaviour, not just issuing wise teaching. After all, to say, do what I do, not do what I say, might be the best way to persuade young men, particularly when it comes to their peers. All too easily we imitate actions. We tune out instead to lengthy speeches. And so... This picks up on the idea from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, that is the very heart of what Christian discipleship is all about. Printed there on your handout, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What he's saying to Titus about the young men is, well, copy me, follow me, imitate me, come with me as I follow Christ. And so you see the kind of character that Titus is to display uh, to his peers when he does teach them. Uh, There in verse uh, verse 7, integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Uh, Titus is to be stately and substantial, not merely fun or funny, which is the normal appeal to younger people. And again, like the godly conduct of younger women that ensures no one will malign the word of God, now look at verse 8. Verse 8, that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Those that oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Isn't that a lovely phrase? Nothing bad to say about us. It's It's a sense of silencing the critics without ever opening your mouth. Do you notice there in verse 8 that Paul says something really interesting? Paul says they will have nothing bad to say about us. He doesn't say they'll have nothing bad to say about you, that is Titus. They'll have nothing bad to say about all of us. Because what Paul is reminding us is that our reputation as a church family, it rises and falls collectively. So, once again this week, As I spend time reflecting on this passage, I've been struck by how this could so aptly describe so many of our young men. I think of Alan and Will at our 7pm gathering. These are young men towards the end of their university degrees who I watch with such thankfulness as they live their lives for younger brothers to imitate. Well, there's a fifth and final group that Paul wants to address, uh, part of the church family, and that's in verses 9 and 10, that's slaves. Now let me read the passage out and then try and explain what's going on here. Slaves, verse 9. 
Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Now, I'm not going to say very much about the slaves uh, because in many ways... Uh, this group of people is the most removed from our situation today. Despite what you might think, the slave-master relationship is not like employee-boss, and neither was it necessarily like the horrors of modern-day slavery about which we prayed for Maggie just a few moments ago. You see, back then, slaves were considered part of families. Uh, They didn't have the same rights as biological relatives, of course, but they were still an integral part of households, often with significant prestige and privilege. So what does Paul have to say to say to slaves in our church family? Well, I'll just point out that once again, I think self-control is probably on view. Now, I know the word doesn't appear there in verses 9 and 10, but look at verse 10. They will be taught not to steal from, them, from their masters, but to show that they can be fully trusted. And you're trying to imagine what Paul is describing there. I think he's talking about slaves who are resisting the temptation to have light fingers when the master isn't around watching. Or likewise, uh, verse 9, not talking back to them, I think that calls to mind the image of self-restraint, of self-control, of holding your tongue. And if I'm right, then actually self-control was applied to all five groups. All five groups. Why? Well, I've got a theory about that. We'll come back to that at the end. Uh, Let me also point out that since Paul is probably referring to Christian slaves with unbelieving masters, he's once again reminding us that our our conduct can make an enormous difference. So you can go even further than not maligning the word of God, even further than ensuring they have nothing bad to say about us, it can actually be a positive impact on outsiders. Look at verse 10. So that in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. In every way, they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Now that word attractive there, uh, in, again, in the original language, in the Greek, the word is cosmeo from which we get the word cosmetics. It means to make it beautiful. So that in every way they can make the teaching about God beautiful. Dare I say, for those who have come and who will come to support uh, someone participating in Commitment Sunday, I trust that it's been significant to see the difference that their conversion to Christ has made in their life. Well, doesn't all that sound magnificent? Doesn't it? What a wonderful picture of what the church family will be like. What a wonderful encouragement for those who are participating in Commitment Sunday. This is what they are being welcomed into. And of course, if you're sitting there thinking, okay, well, from this passage, what's the takeaway for me? What's the application? Well, that's pretty easy, I think. Titus chapter 2, it describes how we are to live. And so probably you're sitting there thinking, wow, that sounds so wonderful. 
It must be perfect here all the time. Oh, actually, you chuckle because, of course, we know that it's not. You see, here's the problem with Titus chapter 2. Despite our best efforts, despite our best efforts for 2,000 years, the church has still not managed to bring about heaven on earth. I take it part of the reason is because families are always messy. Families are always complicated and broken. And we're going to need considerable help to change if we are to be better. I say that thinking both about Christians who are feeling somewhat dejected at our ongoing failings, but likewise for visitors and outsiders who are intrigued by what's been described so far. What happens when it doesn't work out? You see, here is where the problem lies. If you're trying of your own strength, your own self-control, your own sheer force of will to change who you are, I want to say you are never going to succeed. It didn't work before your conversion, so why would it suddenly work now? They say, don't they, that the definition of insanity is just doing the same thing again and again, expecting somehow a different result? So what will happen is that as you try and fail, you'll either be crushed by your shortcomings or you'll delude yourself into thinking you're not actually all that bad after all. I remember hearing years ago uh, an older minister saying, quite seriously, I don't think I sinned today, so I don't need to repent. I remember sitting there thinking, hmm, what about lying? If we're going to become something different, we're going to need something to be different within us. If we want to be changed for the better. And so, point two in your handout, how we are changed for the better. Now follow along as we come back to the passage in verses 11 through 14. You can either look in your Bibles or I've actually reprinted verses 11 through 14 in your handout uh, and I've laid it out in a particular way to emphasise the points and you might want to have that in front of you. That'll become relevant later as well. Titus 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself our people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Here's the key to how we are changed. God's grace does not just, does, sorry, God's grace does not one but two things in us. See, God's grace does both something for us and something in us. Uh, what does it do for us? Well, God's grace saves us from our sins. Verse 11, it offers salvation to all people. But at the same time, God's grace also does something in us. 
It changes us. It changes our hearts, our desires, our motivations. It changes both what we want to resist and what we start to long for. So verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness of worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Because in the end, it's a measure of just how much God loves us. So when God grants us grace, when God shows us mercy, when God forgives us, it's not just to do something for us. It's not just to take away our sins. It's also to do something magnificent in us. It's how he helps us to change by enabling us to want to change. Which I suspect is the reason why the first step in that process is self-control. Now, of course, the thing is that God's work in us is, well, it's still incomplete. It is, as they say, a work in progress until Christ returns. Verse 13, while we wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so verse 14 gives another, a different image of God's grace. God's grace is now described as Christ's self-sacrifice on the cross, uh, gave himself for us. This time, it's the language of purpose, of why Jesus bothered going through with it all, why he laid down his life, what his plan, his intention was. Once again, God's grace does not one but two things for us. He saves us from something and he saves us for something. He saves us from something and he saves us for something. What does he save us from? Well, verse 14, he saves us from all wickedness. But he also saves us for something. Again, verse 14, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What God has done for us in Christ, in the taking away of, of our sins, that's complete. But what God is still doing in us, he is saving us for good works, a people who are eager to do what is good. Now, I wonder if you notice that in this whole section, and um, verses 11 through 14, the active agent is not us, it's our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Verse 11 through 14 are very clear. He is the one who causes us to change for the better. And that's the reason why I think Paul can urge our whole family to live in a particular way in verses 1 through 10, but it's only because of what Christ has done and what Christ promises still to do that we can have any hope of success. That's the only reason why we're not overwhelmed by our inevitable shortcomings. In many ways, what verses 11 through 14 are doing, they are reminding us that really all a Christian is is someone who is getting on board with what Jesus has said he is planning to do in us all along. Actually, what Jesus said he laid down his life to achieve, which is a pretty good reassurance, I think, that he's not about to give up on, give up on us anytime soon. 
getting on board with what Jesus has begun in us. Uh, Getting on board, that means less be a passenger. It means more join in something that Jesus has initiated, that Jesus is driving, that Jesus has said he will finish. And that's pretty encouraging, I think. You'll notice this heading here, point two. It says, how we are changed for the better. Uh, Actually, up until the last minute, uh, the heading used to say, how we change. But actually, I think it's better this way. How we are changed for the better by God. Now, if you want to think more about this, uh, like I'd like to do each week, I want to give you recommended reading, things that you can pick up uh, and continue to explore There's a reference there to an outstanding book by Timothy Lane and Paul David Tripp called, quite simply, How People Change. I read it a number of years ago and picked it up again this week. It is one of the most profound and insightful books, I think, to remind us of what God is doing in us and how that's what gives us the motivation to change. To put it one last way, God's grace saves us from our sins And God's grace saves us for good works. When it speaks of good works, it's not saying that we're to be do-gooders, you know, with all the pejorative connotations that that phrase brings. Rather, it's that lovely phrase that is the title of today's talk, taken directly from verse 14. A people who are eager to do what is good. People who are eager to do what is good. That's the kind of church family we are to be. Now, I've been saying throughout this series that the word good appears lots of times and that it's key uh, to understanding Titus. I've said, in fact, that it appears nine times in three chapters. Well, my confession is that I've discovered actually this ten times. I found another one this week. Uh, Of those ten occurrences of the word good in just three chapters, five of them appear in chapter two. They're all listed there at the bottom of your handout. How wonderful that what God is doing is good not just in me, not just in you, but in us, in a people who are his very own. And that, I think, is so encouraging to see his work in others who are eager to do what is good. That, I think, is a great source of strength when at times it can be so hard because standing together is much easier than going solo. Well, let me finish. Point three, the last verse in Titus chapter 2. Come with me. Titus chapter 2, verse 15. Paul concludes, These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Encourage and rebuke. Uh, Throughout this series, each week I'll be giving you a discussion question. Just a moment to turn to the person next to you. But this week I'm not going to do that. Instead, this week what I thought I'd do is I'm going to encourage you, suggest to you, that perhaps you might like to learn a memory verse. A memory verse. Uh, it's Titus 2, 11, verse 14, obviously. Uh, the reason I'm suggesting this is because, and this is one of the least profound things I will ever say, if you commit scripture to memory, it's more likely to come to mind when you need it. Duh, that's kind of obvious, right? You cannot recall what you do not know. So the suggestion of learning a memory verse It's there to help change your heart. 
So by placing the wonders of God's grace front and centre in your heart, in your mind, in your soul in this week ahead, even on your lips, dare I say it, then, well actually, his grace that can be easy to forget amidst the busyness of life, it will more readily come to mind. Actually, that's what I've tried to do this week. Uh, I've tried to memorise Titus 2, 11 through 14. Can I say that it has helped me to be more aware of and to look out for God's grace in my life and in others? It has been, I think, an encouragement and a rebuke. So I'm going to finish by trying to recite the memory verse. It's pretty bad under spotlights, can I say? And I've not quite got it perfect yet today, but this is the third time around, so let's see how we go. For the grace of God... Oh dear, that's terrible. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to... It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that has saved us from our sins and saves us for the good works you prepared for us in advance to do. We pray in this week ahead, remind us once again of how wonderful your mercy is and how it changes everything and it changes us for the better. Amen.